Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We come to the end of another week in uh, politics here in Georgia. And as we've said frequently on this show, just because the election is over, it doesn't mean that politics is slowing down here in the state or, for that matter, uh, nationally. Um, Today, we're going to take a look at politics through a broader lens. Um, We're living in a time when we know that conspiracy theories are running rampant in our country. There are Georgia lawmakers, we learned just this week in a release of texts that went between them and former Trump chief of staff Mark Meadows, who believed that the presidential election was stolen for Joe Biden uh, because uh, evil forces in Italy were able to manipulate voting machines here Uh, to change the outcome of the race. We know that QAnon uh, has uh, perpetuated theories that Democrats are running sex trafficking rings with young people, that um, vaccines are actually um, an effort to plant microchips in Americans so they can be tracked by the government. Our own Marjorie Taylor Greene, who at one point uh, accused Uh, uh, Jews of uh, sending space lasers to interfere with weather systems in the United States. And I think we all look at these theories, these crazy ideas, and say, how could this possibly be something people believe in? Well, it's not new. We're going to go back all the way to the 17th century and look at the Salem witch trials in which mass hysteria gripped an entire community in Massachusetts, and the consequences of that were deadly. And we're going to take that and bring it up to date with other uh, times in our history when we have been, as a people, caught up in fanciful, outrageous uh, conspiracy theories that have had an impact on who we are as a people. So, Uh, To do that, uh, I'm going to be joined today, as I am every Friday, by my colleague Jim Galloway, former political uh, columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Jim, I'm glad you're here for this show. Uh, Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, well, one of the reasons I'm glad it's you is that you also are kind of uh, like me. You really like uh, history. Uh, And so uh, I thought you were the right guy to have part of this one. Uh, it's you know it, it's it's uh, I, I would say it's 17th century is not my strong suit. I'm 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 kind of more of a 19th century guy, but but I'm going to do it, give it my best shot. Well, our special guest today, thank goodness, uh, does know something about the 17th century and beyond. He is Professor Emerson Baker. He's a professor of history at uh, Salem State University. I think also uh, Professor Baker. You are an archaeo- you're an archaeologist as well. You are uh, you have uh, taught archaeological history as well. If I got that right, uh, 
Absolutely. We, we, we teach all aspects of uh, 17th and 18th century. Uh, and so in some degrees, that gives you a very different perspective on the past, too. Well, let me start. Let's go back to the Salem uh, witch trials. Um, and and um, we want to talk to you about that because you've written a book, uh, A Storm of Witchcraft, which goes into it in great detail. And it was your book that really captured our attention. So I'll just give you set up a few facts and then you'll fill us all in. So the Salem witch trials really were the outcome, interestingly enough, of the fact that Salem was a, well, let me ask you, Salem was a small village in Massachusetts. Tell us a little bit about the uh, culture in Salem at the time. Who were the people who lived there? How was it governed? Give, just give us a setup. Sure. Um, we'll, we'll do 17th century 101 uh, for you, Jim. Um, Salem, uh, actually, Salem is, is multiple communities in the 17th century. It's a large, sprawling community that extends today for maybe 15, 20 miles across. Um, and you have the busy port of Salem, which is focused on the Atlantic world and commerce. And then you have Salem Village in the interior, the rural farmland, which is where the witchcraft outbreaks really started out. And to some degrees, part of the problem here is the tension between those two groups. But regardless of where you lived, you were a Puritan. That is radical radical Protestants who had come to America to build, as their leader John Winthrop said, a city upon a hill. They were trying to build a Christian utopian community to escape from the corruption of the Church of England and to have a special relationship, a special covenant with God. And, um, and the, the, the colony had prospered since they first arrived in the 1620s and had been doing quite well. But by the late 1600s, Massachusetts Bay, there were problems developing. Um, and these may sound somewhat familiar to you, right? You have uh, concerns that people may have been falling away from their God and from, and from that special relationship with head with God. Uh, attendance at church, even though required, was down, right? And, and fewer members were joining the church. So there's, there's, there's religious issues. There's all sorts of political squabbles locally in Salem Village where they're arguing over who their minister should be. Uh, and, and, and these are religious as well as kind of political squabbles. But on top of that, we have a new governor coming to the colony with a new charter to run the government, and people are worried about that, especially when this fellow is uh, Sir William Phipps, the, a, a treasure hunter who had raised a Spanish treasure galleon, but wasn't known for being an Orthodox Puritan. So you have all of these kinds of religious, political issues, but also in, amidst that, you have the worst weather of, the, of a 300-year period, uh, which is destroying crops, you have, which means you have high inflation, high taxes, and you have a war that these people are losing to the French and the Native Americans on the northern frontier. Um, so it really creates, I call my book A Storm of Witchcraft, really to relate it to that other Essex County tragedy, the, the perfect storm, which destroyed the fishing fleet and oh. many lives. And, and I think what I, the, point, the point I'm trying to make here is that you, you have a colony that, that is, uh, to, a, to, a, to a Puritan, everything is seen as a sign of God's pleasure or displeasure. Remember, we're before the age of reason here, right? And so when things go bad, that's a sign that, that, that you, have, you have erred in some way and, and strayed from God's path. And people are genuinely, by 1692, are convinced that Satan is in their midst, that, 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 that God has let loose Satan uh, amongst them as a test of, of people's spiritual, spiritual fervor. What, one of the things that I think is fascinating, it, into the mix that you just described for us, and there's certainly parallels to today in this regard, uh, is— refugees have begun arriving in Salem as a result 
of the the war. And they are greeted with some skepticism, distrust, um, and in fact are considered you know, people to be uh, – pe- what, what were they doing there? How are they going to yeah. take, take um, over uh, jobs that others had had? It's very similar to the refugee crisis of today. Yes, the war is going so badly in places, well, present-day Maine and New Hampshire, that most of the settlements up here have been uh, – I'm actually ta- talking to you from my home in New York, Maine, actually, not from Salem. Um, most of these people um, had left and, and had become a burden to the population in Salem. Um, they have to rely on public support. Relatives or friends or strangers have to take them in and help feed them. Um, and these people are coming from this, this frontier, which is inhabited by non-Puritans, by Native Americans, who are likely pagan, um, and, and the French, who are their allies. And the French, of course, are Catholics, and the Puritans have a near pathological hatred and fear of the Catholics. And to us, it's kind of a laughable thing, you know, but this was this is what they truly believed. So some people ask, like, what were you even doing up there to begin with? This is kind of you know, the, the dark corners of, of Christian piety, and what, why on earth would you leave the safety, the, the spiritual safety, right, of Salem, uh, and, and now you're here, and we have to feed you and look after you, and you're no longer defending the frontier, and next thing you know, the French and the Indians are going to attack us. Yeah, there's a real paranoia out there. Jim, jump in. Uh, yeah, this, this is, uh, let's talk a little bit about institutions and, and, and structure, because uh, we're trying to draw some parallels with what's going on. So you have, uh, you have tell, tell us a little bit more about the governor, because I, 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 the way I understand your, your, your writing, he becomes very key to this, because, uh, because it, it, it's kind of it develops into, into the sense that, that the Puritans over there no longer had, they, they no longer felt that they had control over, the, over their, their, own, uh, their own bubble, if you will. Yeah, and actually, I actually, years ago, I wrote a biography of Sir William Phipps, so I, I know him really well. He's a, he's a latecomer to the cause. Let, let's just put, let me just describe him this way. So supposing the, um, the new leader of your government uh, is, is a person, a fellow who comes into office with zero political experience and dubious credentials from, from, from your party, because he's only recently converted to the cause. Um, oh, that, that could never happen here. That could never happen <laughs> here. No, no. And, and imagine you someone who's kind of like borderline literate, never really reads. Um, no, no, no it's still not ringing a bell. Uh, well, how about this? How about someone who is one of the richest, most famous people in the land, who, um, who has made many investments, has gained and lost multiple fortunes, and is kind of like this, this roller coaster sort of character, right? You know, now, again, I, this... This is this completely is unbelievable, but it actually actually does describe, of course, Sir William Phipps, the first American to be knighted by the King of England, and the and the Governor of Massachusetts Bay, who is announced in January 1692. He's coming back from England. He's he's a Maine boy. Again, he's got those kind of dubious credentials, and he's coming back to take over the government uh, in the midst of this horrible war. And um, people. It's interesting that the first act afflictions by the children of Salem and the young adults take place just about the same time that they learn that this new questionable governor is coming to take over with a whole new form of government, a whole new charter. The king and the queen have invalidated Massachusetts-based charter because some of its, their laws are, are repugnant to the laws of England, and they want them to start from scratch. So you can see the kind of, uh, again, yeah, maybe there's a parallel or two to today, but I would argue that in lots of different ways. Okay, so um, into this mix, um, 
comes a situation in which uh, two young, they're girls, actually, uh, start behaving in a way that draws suspicion to them. Um, we're not going to go into it in great depth, but yeah. what's going on with these two girls and 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 uh, uh, a character named Tituba, uh, right. who is the third of these three uh, to initially be accused of witchcraft? Why and and what's their behavior? Yeah, so these these girls are the first afflicted, and they are the daughter and the niece of of the minister in Salem Village, Reverend Samuel Paris, and he is preaching fire and brimstone sermons, and these are little girls. Um, the, 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 a, new, uh, a new set of leaders in Salem have taken over, and they're no longer paying Paris's salary. We're delivering firewood to him. They're trying to get him to leave. And he sees this sort of as, as Satan's challenge to his authority, and he's storming around the parsonage, bellowing out, God is coming, he's terribly angry, uh, and, and like really very much sort of a revivalistic um, sort of preaching of the day. And he does he doesn't intend to do this, but he is essentially scaring his daughter and niece to death, right? They can't help but hear this and see how upset he is over the challenges to him. And by today's standards, um, you know, they begin to act funny, barking like a dog, um, feeling like someone's sticking 100 pins and needles into them. And they, don't, they are not faking these symptoms, right? They are real to them. And what? Now, look, I'm not a psychiatrist, nor do I play one on television, but... Um, it seems, it seems that these girls, at least, uh, are, are, are suffering from what we would consider to call today mass conversion disorder, right? Where, where your mind is so troubled and so terrified by what's going on around you that it converts your mental anguish to physical symptoms. It doesn't tell you, right? So you're not faking, you're not making it up. And frankly, that makes it worse because you don't know why you're behaving this way. Um, and so, uh, and this soon spreads. Um, to to other other members of the community, uh, and in fact, there's examples of this today of, of mass conversion disorder that is spread throughout communities. And it, it's a think about this: it's something that invariably happens to adolescent. Most of the victims today are adolescent girls, and if you think of the stresses our society places on young women, and I have, I have two daughters that I'm very proud of that came through it successfully. Mm. But back then, it was even worse because we're talking about a patriarchal, male-dominated, um, a deeply spiritual community. And uh, these girls um, uh, really, by our standards, freak out, right? They've, they, and, and by the standards of the day, these are seen as symptoms of what they knew was witchcraft, proof that Satan was in their midst. So, Jim, what's fascinating to me about this is when that behavior began, word of it started spreading in the community at, say, church meetings, community meetings. Today, we see Twitter and Instagram and Facebook as the vehicles for uh, accusing people of behavior that is suspicious, condemning them. I find it fascinating. It's the same thing. It's just done in a different uh, form. Uh, yeah, yeah. Twitter, Twitter has become our church. Uh, so is Instagram. Uh, that this is this is where we gather and we and we we we, we uh, swap our deepest feelings now. Uh, I wish that weren't show, so, but it's, uh, that's, that's the way it is. And, 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 you know, I think we tend to think it's the 17th century. These people weren't in contact, but it really was very much of a global village, you know, and, 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 and word spread. People, in, people living in a place like Salem in the 17th century had very little privacy. It's, it's fascinating to read the court records and to hear the kind of gossip and information that people know about their neighbors. Frankly, it's just like you, today, like we find out on social media, you know, like 
try to tell my students, it's like, you know, don't put it, don't put it on social media unless you want it to be there in perpetuity, right? It's not coming down. So, Emerson, the, the community began, the Salem community um, began looking for witches, Starting with those three young people, they began expanding their search to find people who were witches. They questioned the smallest changes of behavior and and began rounding up people uh, to stand trial for witchcraft. And worse, they began uh, asking, interrogating some of them and saying, you're a witch. You need to tell us who the other witches are. Yes? Yes, absolutely. It, you know, when I teach the witch trials, it's almost as much of sort of a social justice course as it is history. At least it's become that because uh, really, you know, witch hunts are, are all about other and difference and scapegoating and trying to find people to blame, again, you know, for like problems that might be your own or at least that you have a role of. And so you look for people who are different. Maybe someone who speaks with an accent or dresses differently than you or worships God a little bit differently. And, and this is the people, these are the people who were initially accused in Salem. It's kind of like a, it's a working class crime, you know, amongst those sorts of, sorts of people that that neighbor who you get into an argument with and she curses you. And the next thing you know, something bad happens to you. And all of a sudden, she's not just a, a nasty neighbor. She's a witch. So tell me, tell us about what was happening in the trials. What were the uh, and the judges themselves were interesting people uh, in in these trials. Who were they, and what were the sort of questions or tests they were putting these uh, 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 mostly women through uh, in their efforts to find out whether they were witches or not? Yeah, sure. You know, um, the, uh, the there is a panel of nine judges. And they have all been actually members of the of the governor's council today. That would be our state senate, um, and they've been appointed to that office by the king and queen themselves. But also, too, they by 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 having that role, they're also judges, uh, and they're also leaders of, of uh, military officers as well who are losing the war. So uh, there's a lot of power here in the hands of the few people who are looking for people to blame because they're also merchants who have lost millions, by today's standards, millions of dollars worth of investment on the main frontier as the Native Americans burnt down their, their sawmills. So um, these are people who uh, are kind of looking for someone to blame. And, but at the same time, they, they are, most of them are Harvard College graduates, the majority of them, um, or attended. These are, these are smart people. They've been judges for a long time. Uh, English law back then isn't all that different than today. Uh, people are innocent until proven guilty. But somehow things go wrong here where the first questions ask the first people to go before the judges. Poor Sarah Good, they ask her, um, why do you hurt these girls? How long have you been, been in league with, with Satan? And they might as well ask, when did you stop beating your husband, right? Jim? Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so the, the, uh, the final verdict is what? We, have, we had 25 dead uh, executed? Right. Nineteen executed, one pressed to death when they essentially wouldn't confess. Yeah, and, more and, weight, and, and, more weight. Right, and five more dying in prison because back then, while awaiting trial, because back then prison is like think think medieval dungeon, and you got the right idea. You're lucky to live there uh, over a long period of time. So yeah, the total number is 25 dead. You have over a, over 150 people have formal charges against them. Many of them are locked away for a year and have this lasting stain on their family for generations because of this claim that they have have abandoned God and become worshipers of Satan. 
Um, Emerson Baker, when we first uh, uh, talked, I said we were going to try to, you know, do about half the show. Uh, I'd like to prevail upon you to stay with us. This is really interesting. We haven't even gotten into talking about how th- what we're, we're discussing in terms of Salem relates to what we've been going through in, in recent times here in this country and other historical events in the country. So can we keep you with us for a while longer? Sure. Good, I'd good, be happy, good, Julia. Good. I love talking about this stuff well, with you. All right. So before we take a break, I'm fa- one of the things I'm fascinated by is that it took a very long time for um, Salem uh, and Massachusetts to acknowledge historically what had happened there in terms of the witch trials. And in fact, most interesting of all, is it was only this year that the final woman who was convicted of witchcraft was exonerated. That's astonishing. It, yeah, it's a long story. As I say, Gallows Hill cast a long shadow over Salem, where um, it took until really 1711 until the first people were, were pardoned, or technically reversal of attainder, right? Pardon, I think as we probably all know today, pardon means you're, you're acknowledging that you committed a crime, but you're being forgiven for it. Um, reversal of attainder means that the charges are essentially dropped. You were never accused or convicted of witchcraft. It took 20 years for that, um, in large part because of, of the, the government and refusing to accept guilt or, or blame. Um, and then even in the 20th century, it took Salem until the 300th anniversary in 1992 to build a memorial. There were efforts before that, but people were embarrassed, ashamed, of feelings of guilt, and didn't want to do the, the right thing. And it took, yes, until the legislature in the 20th century, and now is pardoned from the 1950s until this year, has pardoned another uh, six or seven folks who were, were convicted of, of, of witchcraft, uh, finally the last one being pardoned again, like just a couple months ago. Um, so this is, and some of you say this is is, is just a, a hollow honorific, if you will, right? A hollow gesture. But you know what? I know many of the descendants of the, from these families, and it means a great deal to them. It is unfinished business to them that th- these injustices were never were never righted. So we were thrilled to finally see the legislature take action and and, and Governor Baker to to sign off on it. By the way, no relation to. Governor Baker, but I, I, I do think he's done a great job as governor. <laughs> okay. Let's do this. Uh, let's take our first break of the show. Jim, when we come back, uh, I want to talk about moving this forward in history. We know, for instance, that um, events in this country uh, uh, during the uh, uh, House Un-American Activities Committee work to root out communists uh, is very similar Uh, to what went on in Salem. I want to talk about that. And then I want to bring it up to date to today. The conspiracy theories that have uh, run around the country uh, during the uh, tenure of Donald Trump as president and continue today. We'll do all that and more after these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon.
Jim Galloway and I are talking today to Professor Emerson Baker. He's at Salem State University um, and is the author of A Storm of Witchcraft, which specifically tells the story of the Salem witch trials. Today we're talking about that. We're adding to that uh, more current history in which similar uh, incidents occurred in our own history that let, in which paranoia and fear uh, created situations of almost mass hysteria. Jim, you want to jump right in? Uh, yeah, if I if I can make a couple more uh, 17th and 18th century <laughs> points here is is is, is number one uh, in 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 uh, uh, reading Dr. Baker's book. Uh, uh, what I didn't realize was was that the, the state of Massachusetts, the colony of Massachusetts, slapped a slapped a total embargo on 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 oh. any discussion of what happened uh, with with with, uh, with those trials, and it took a great deal to 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 kind of penetrate it, uh, and and then uh, just uh, this I found found this just a very fascinating tidbit. Okay, one of the uh, one of the 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 uh, the original accusers was uh, get, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, uh, Emerson uh, uh, Bathsheba Pope, am I right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That <laughs> yeah. is Ben Franklin's aunt. Yeah. So we go so we go from one generation uh of of witchcraft straight to the enlighten, enlightenment which I I find just uh, just a, a tremendous kind of shift in in uh in in cultural attitudes. So so it, could 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 you could you talk a little bit about that cuz Sure. Yeah, it, it really we really are at, at, at the cusp in the late 17th century of, of change. Again, we're beginning to reach the age of the age of reason, the age of science, and uh, it, it doesn't take long for that for that switch to go. And but to your point, I, to some degrees, I think the, the that that cover up is, is part of the story as well too, because uh, Governor Phipps does write to the king and the queen, and he writes with a book that Cotton Mather has published, the le- one of the leading ministers of the colony, but. By our today's standards, folks, I'd call him like a 17th century spin doctor because he writes this book to basically say no innocent lives were lost. And if we look at just these four or five cases out of these 150 people accused, you'll see, you know, these people were all guilty. Um, Well, and the government says, so now that we have the truth from Cotton Mather, we don't need to hear from anybody else. And I'm I'm issuing a book ban and a publication ban, and no one's going to write about this, right? Uh, This sounds familiar to me. I see it as the first first government sort of endorsed cover-up, if you will, in American history. And, and why are they doing it? Because we have the first massive failure by the government to protect the innocent. And, you know, I, I think to some degree we all, well, guys, of our generation, our, our first big sort of crisis along these lines was Watergate. How could the government do this to us? But I also think if you look at American politics throughout history, um, I, I think it goes deeper than this. I think Americans have a uh, an instinctive distrust of the government, you know, people of left, right, or center all laugh when you say, "I'm from the government. I'm here to help you." Right? Um, and, and and if you look at people who supported Trump or, or Sanders in 2016, they have a lot in common in their in their concerns over the government. Well, I think people were that way uh, in in the 17th century after 25 innocent lives had been lost, and after the government even refused to talk about it, and finally the ban was broken after. Four years by a, by a Quaker, not a Puritan, who were people that were considered really, frankly, reviled citizens of the colony for reasons because they received as a challenge to the Puritans. But the, the guy is uh, is actually wins his trial because 
he uh, he says, you, you know, you can't even, you, you can't prove this case against me. And the jury eventually agrees. And it's seen by many people as the beginnings of, of, of the rights uh, in American jurisprudence of freedom of speech, freedom of religion and mm. freedom of the press, because the book that he published had been banned and burnt. And uh, and but he long story short is he, he got off the hook. So to me. These, 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 these events in the 17th century seem strikingly modern in many ways. You know, Jim, uh, when Professor Baker talks about uh, mistrust of government, we can certainly bring that up to the present. I mean, we have millions of Americans who mistrust the government's um, belief that we should all get vaccinated against the coronavirus. Um, and, and what that's done, not only do they mistrust the government— over whether the vi- the vaccine vaccine is good for us, but it foments further conspiracy thinking about the government and what it's trying to do to all of us. It's a very it's a very similar situation, and and it, and 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 it, and it goes to the president's desk today. Yeah, in the form uh, of a defense bill. Exactly the defense uh, that, bill. Uh, yes, go ahead explain what's going to uh, happen. That, uh, a defense bill that it does increase increase Pentagon spending, but it also. Uh, uh, removes the, 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 the COVID vaccine mandate for all, all service personnel. Despite the fact that Biden pushed it hard, Kevin McCarthy said that House Republicans would revolt. They would not vote for the defense bill if it included the measure that if it did not include a measure freeing uh, members of the military from having to uh, be vaccinated. So fascinating. Okay. Um, so everybody but, listens. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, no, no, no. Go I ahead. I can jump in on that. No, um, just the, the thing, one thing I forgot to mention to you folks, which you will find really interesting, I think. Um, the, the other, one of the other big problems Massachusetts was facing in 1690, 1692, a large smallpox outbreak. Oh. Yep. Uh, and, and uh, in fact, actually was perceived, one of, the, one of the first women to be accused and convicted of witchcraft was Martha Carrier, whose family had the unfortunate name of carrier because her family was believed to be the carrier that had actually brought smallpox into Andover, which is the town next to Salem, and led to many deaths. And again, there was a real controversy over this now. And even though Cotton Mather was on the wrong side of the witch trials, uh, about 20 years later, he was one of the leaders in this movement to do this crazy new thing of to vaccinate people against smallpox. Uh, and again, it was a hot button political issue uh, then, then as well. So, so you know, this 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 fear of disease and vaccination uh, even fit into life in 1692. Oh no, no! I'm glad you I'm glad you you brought that up. All right. So everybody who listens to this show with some regularity knows that you know my first greatest love is theater and politics simultaneously. And, and I think we. So I, I I hope I can say with you know some you know, background in theater, that Arthur Miller's play The Crucible is truly one of the greatest um, American plays ever written. And it, of course, is about the Salem witch trials. But Jim Galloway, Arthur Miller was not really thinking about the Salem witch trials when he wrote this play. He was thinking about the House on american Activities Committee efforts to root out communists in government, in the entertainment business, trying to force people who were being accused of being communists, of uh, naming names of others, telling them that if they would name names, they could be freed from uh, any uh, prosecution. Uh, They wouldn't be put on a blacklist. And Miller wrote the play 
because he saw such great similarities between the Salem witch trials and what was happening in Congress under Joe McCarthy. I'm going to play just uh, one scene from the movie version of the play The Crucible. Daniel Day-Lewis plays John Proctor, a man in the Salem colonies who is accused of witchcraft and is told he must sign a document confessing to his witchcraft and also naming other people. He signs the document and then rips it up. And what follows is this moment, which I think, frankly, is one of the most riveting moments in American theater. God does not need my name nailed to the church. God knows how black my sins are. Now look, you proper. How may I teach my sons to walk like men in the world and I sold my friends? You have not sold yours. I blacken all of them when I nail this to the church and they have hanged for silence. I must have good and legal proof that you have confessed to witchcraft, Proctor. You are the high court. Your word is good enough. <laughs> Tell them Proctor broke to his knees and wept like a woman. My, my name I cannot sign. Why? Do you mean to deny this confession when you are free? I mean to deny nothing. Then explain to me why you will because not... Because it is my name! Because I cannot have another in my life! Because I lie and sign myself to lies! Because I am not worth the dust on the feet of them you have hanged. I have given you my soul. Leave me my name! It's an extraordinary moment. But Jim, there were people who were brought before the House Un-American Activities Committee who were faced with exactly that same situation. Give us names of others who you know to have been communists. Some wilted and gave the names. Others refused, and those who refused in the entertainment business particularly were blacklisted, could not find work for years. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. The, the, the Crucible is a play. It debuted in January 1953, mm-hmm. and that was, that was roughly uh, 12 to 15 months before the, 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 the start of the uh, uh, Army hearings yeah. uh, the, 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 where, where uh, McCarthy, uh, Joseph McCarthy of Wisconsin had brought uh, members of the armed forces in front of his un-American uh, activities committee, and the, this was the this was where we had the the famous frame, f- phrase uh, at long last heard. Do you have have you no shame? Uh, it's it, it, so 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 it, the play comes at the just really at the apex of McCarthy's power in the 1950s. Why don't you weigh in on this, Emerson? Well, first off, I'd point out that the, the the person who said "Have you no shame" was, of course, uh, the main senator, Margaret Chase Smith, who we're very proud of. Uh, for her, her leadership in many ways. Um, yeah, absolutely. The same thing was going on in, in 1692, um, where the ministers were urging confession out of the victims, particularly to, to, to increase the circle. Uh, now, here's the problem. Of course, back then, um, there was no getting off the hook. If you confessed to being a witch, you were still, it's like confessing to a murder. You're still going to be executed. But, I, but the idea was like, but confession is good for the soul. It's good for you. It's good for the community. Um, and by the way, can you you know, essentially, it was understood, I think, that as long as you kept on giving them names, you'd stay alive. Because interestingly, um, over a third of the people of those 150 accused of witchcraft confessed. 
but none of them died, right? They were keeping them alive so they could keep on spreading that circle outward and find more people to blame. And so uh, it really, that's how the Salem Witch Trials grow, is this use of, of confession uh, and, and uh, trying to essentially badger people. Or in some cases, we knew, we know that mild, I'm putting quotes here, right? Mild judicial torture was used. John Proctor wrote to the ministers complaining that his son and some of the other teenage boys had been tortured. They had literally took, they had been tied neck and heels together mm. and then grabbed by their belt, held upside down until blood gushed out their nose. I, and, and, you know, it never would really kill you, but when you're in that position, it's kind of, I think it's kind of like 17th century waterboarding, right? So, so yeah, so there was, there was a extreme tactics used in, in the 17th century to get people to confess, but it had the same effect of, um, of whether you confessed or not. Uh, and and you, you were sort of blacklisted by the community. And we know in some cases it took maybe 100 years for the fences to be mended between the families of victims and accusers. Because imagine going to church on the Sabbath, the most important day for the community where everyone, everyone takes a day of rest and a day de- dedicated to God, and you're sitting on the church bench, and the people next to you are responsible for your mother being convicted and killed for being a witch. You, you... Um, yeah. Um, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you at all, but no, no, you, no, have I was, mentioned, I was, yeah. you, you have mentioned uh, the other examples in American history where we had similar situations uh, in, in which communities turned against communities and, and, uh, uh, and, and what ensued. Talk to us about that. Sure. Well, you know, if you look through American history, pretty much every generation has a Salem moment, um, one of these sort of hot-button political religious issues which, which overtakes the country. Um, before the American Revolution and during it, it was, it was the loyalists or the Tories, you know, calling the patriots, really being these, these fanatics, just like their ancestors, the, the people who, who, who uh, executed the witches in Salem. In, in, in the antebellum period, it, it's, it's southern slaveholders who are accusing New Englanders, abolitionists, of the same sort of, you know, rushing to judgment, extremism, their points of views. And in this case, they up it. They up it a, a, a notch, and they talk about burning witches like cordwood. And, of course, they didn't actually burn witches by English, English law. It was, this is a, a civil crime. Um, it, you, can every, you, could, you could look at it in multiple generations, you know, the, the Palmer raids in 1919, the first Red Scare. Um, and I, I, I think, you know, we're, this, as, an, as an American democracy, we're constantly facing these, these tests, these challenges. Emerson, uh, one thing, one thing that uh, that uh, out of your out of your book that I, that that caught my eye was that you had people in 1730 uh, connecting. The, the New York had a race riot, essentially a race riot, a a, a, a rumored slave revolt in New York in, in New York of all places uh, that led to that led to to dozens of 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 uh, uh, black people dying. And, uh, and and people at the time uh, connected connected the 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 the, the rumor swirling to uh, uh, to to the to the Salem trials. Absolutely, Jim. And I mean, so yeah. In, in case you folks down in Georgia didn't know, slavery is the North's dirty little secret, right? And that uh, I think in the 18th century there were more slaves in New York City than any other place uh, in North America um, because it was such a large community, and and also in Massachusetts too. And we know. Again, who's who's the first person accused of witchcraft in Salem in 1692? It is it is Titiba, 
who is uh, actually probably a Native American. Again, in the Crucible, she's portrayed as being an African. Um, but there are also, too, uh, African slaves who are, are accused of witchcraft as well. And yes, you're absolutely right. Um, it, they really are, are uh, here's the deal. again, like it's all about scapegoating, right? Someone else is responsible. We have, we're paranoid that, that there's going to be a slave revolt. And, 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 and again, it, it really is sort of seen as this paranoia, this fear of, of, of others, right? That is something that, that uh, is, we see generationally throughout American history. Um, I, Professor Emerson Baker, this has really been a fascinating conversation. I'm so glad that you joined us. I want to give a special shout out to our producer, Chase McGee, who's uh, put this show together today and who uh, connected with you, Professor, uh, to uh, talk with us about the Salem witch trials and the parallels uh, to uh, today. I'm especially grateful that you spent a little extra time with us on the show today, but I want to thank you for being here. Emerson Baker's book is The Storm of Witchcraft. He's a professor at Salem State University. And uh, again, we're very glad you were here today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks a lot. I I enjoyed it a great deal. Have a great day. We're going to take a uh, final break of the show. Jim Galloway, you and I will come back and we'll talk about what's happening in Georgia politics today. This is Political Rewind. We're back on uh, Political Rewind. Jim Galloway and I uh, spending the last segment of the show together. Jim, I just thought that was a really interesting conversation. No, it was. It was. This is. This is. This is why I love history. I think James Baldwin is the one who said the the, the best thing about history is 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 it teaches you that you're not alone. Oh. That 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 everything has happened before. Uh, that it's not the same, but it's you know it's. Uh, 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 there are people who have who have experienced what you're experiencing. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. So let's talk a little bit about some of the parallels again uh, between uh, uh, Salem and uh, today. Um, Jim, we know that uh, this week, um, Talking Points uh, memo was able to publish a series of texts that the January sixth committee that actually subpoenaed from Mark Meadows who was, of course, uh, former President Trump's chief of staff at the end of his tenure. And um, they pertain particularly to the uh, uh, efforts in 2020, late 2020, to overturn the results of elections in battleground states, Georgia, of course, being one of the most significant. And, Jim, these some of these texts, um, two people in particular— uh, Congressman Rick Allen, of a uh, Republican from Evans, and Marty Harbin, a Republican state senator. Uh, what they were suggesting that Mark Meadows ought to be looking at um, are—I don't know. They're not. It's not shocking anymore because it's the sort of thing we've uh, gotten to know about uh, ever since the certainly the January sixth committee began its hearings. Um, so. Rick Allen says in a text to Meadows, from what I can tell so far, it looks like this is a high tech and foreign government collusion with the Democratic Party to guarantee that Biden would win, which explains that the president with hundreds of thousands of votes ahead until they figured out what they needed. Uh, This is wild stuff. Um, Marty Harbin uh, says um, that uh, 
there, he, he says the Italian defense contractors out there were manipulating the uh, election results via satellite. And then he kept Meadows up to speed on the efforts that he and other Republicans in the legislature were making to overturn Biden's victory by calling a special session uh, to, uh, in some way, overturn the results, whether it was to decertify the duly elected electors or to somehow call for a recount that would find other results. There were all sorts of uh, ideas around that. Jim, it's just stunning. Yeah, yeah, and it, it, I found very, very interesting uh, 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 Rick Allen's rationale for it. Uh, basically, uh, you know, he said he said he cleared his district by what eighteen thousand votes, yeah. uh, a, a wider margin than the, the president, and so he couldn't understand why the rest of the country didn't do the same. Uh, but, but uh, to, to bring it back to to uh, to Salem, Massachusetts. Uh, uh, neither of these gentlemen uh, have uh, are, are willing to talk about what they what they wrote, what they said during that period in in, in two thousand one, uh, and we are uh, look we are uh, on I think on Monday we're going to have the January sixth committee uh, finish finish up its business, then on January third the the house uh, the house shifts to Republican control, mm-hmm. and we're going to see and we're going to see uh, the curtain fall. On January sixth, in that chamber, I think. Uh, I, I think that will be. Uh, uh, we will have something uh, uh, cl- close to a, a, a uh, an embargo on on any January sixth information coming out. Yeah, and I want to talk a little bit more about uh, about just what's going to happen when Republicans take the House. But before that, before we get away completely from these texts, um, this isn't new reporting because I think CNN reported it months ago. But it's nevertheless. Uh, interesting t- talking points memo had it in in their story about this. Two things, really. First of all, they have found a text in which uh, David Perdue, who, of course, at the time that the text was written, was uh, running against Brian Kemp in the Republican primary for governor. And uh, he sent a, a, a text to uh, Meadows saying, don't send Trump down here before the runoff election. We don't we don't want him down here. He said, quote, that would be a disaster here. Can you call me? Uh, thanks. Uh, Purdue knew even back then what people are learning in this state since Trump is not your best friend when it comes to trying to win elections in Georgia. And and actually, I believe to, he he showed up in Dalton on uh, that. It was a Friday or Saturday yeah, yeah. before the election. Uh, re- regardless of what what uh, Purdue wanted, uh, Purdue was not there because he was he was quarantined at that point yep. with, with COVID. Yep. Um, the other interesting text, um, and again, this has been reported some months ago, was took place during the uh, now famous, infamous phone call in which. Uh, President, then President Trump, called Brad Raffensperger and asked him to find enough votes for Trump to be declared the winner of the election here in Georgia. Uh, Jordan Fuchs, who is the deputy uh, secretary of state, was on that call, listening in on that call. And she sent a text to um, Meadows saying, need to end this call. I don't think this will be productive much longer. 
interesting that uh, that she understood, and there's certainly probably others who are listening in on that call, that this was not going to go well for either Raffensperger or Trump, but particularly not for Trump. No, no. And, and, and I think she added in the second text, let's save the relationship. Yes, exactly. exactly. You know, uh, that's, so, so it tells you, it tells you that, that she knew exactly what was at stake and, and what, what, could, would, what, what could come of this. Yeah, you know, Jordan Fuchs was on the show earlier this week. I wish she talked about this when she was on. But anyhow, I, I just, that's just an interesting uh, text. All right, so Jim, um, we know that in, in the coming weeks— Um, Very shortly, really, Kevin McCarthy is going to stand for election as Speaker of the House. We know that he's struggling a bit. Uh, The the Republican majority in the House isn't going to be small enough that he can't afford too many uh, defections. Um, Andrew Clyde uh, of uh, Athens has uh, made it clear that he's siding with the very conservative members who are not enthusiastic about supporting McCarthy for speaker. He and others want a, a, a mechanism. They want McCarthy to agree to a mechanism in which essentially a trigger could be pulled quickly uh, to vote to uh, uh, get the speaker out of office, which, of course, McCarthy's not going to do. On the other hand, Marjorie Taylor Greene has sided with McCarthy which I think is a kind of, a, I've said this on the show before, I think it's very shrewd on her part um, because if he does become speaker, um, he's going to owe her and she's going to get some plum assignments. Yeah, yeah look, you, you saw this a little bit during the Tea Party movement where you had Tom Graves who, 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 who held the, uh, the seat that Marjorie Taylor Greene holds now where he kind of shifted away from being a, 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 a backbench bomb thrower into being more of an administ- administrative guy. Uh, uh, an, an assistant, uh, kind of hel- helping Paul Bryan. Uh, Paul Ryan. Uh, uh, Barry Loudermilk has has pretty much done the same. Uh, there, they've modified their 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 outrage to to make themselves a little bit more productive to the home folks, uh, and that's that's one that's that, that's that's something to take into account. Andrew Clyde, you know, it's interesting. Basically, what Andrew Clyde is 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 and 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 his lot, they're demanding that the House become something like the Senate did when they had the the one vote margin. When you had when you had a one vote margin in the Senate, every senator became president. Every every senator had control of the Biden agenda, and that's kind of that's kind of what they're looking for. They 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 don't want uh, uh, a speaker so much as a hostage. I think. Oh, that's a great way of putting it. I think that's right. Um, we're going to watch that unfold uh, with great interest, uh, and we're going to watch what promises McCarthy has to make uh, to try to win over the the extreme right wing of his party up there. Uh, for instance. For quite some time, he was saying he did not want to pursue impeachment against President Biden. Now he's being more equivocal about it because he knows that some of those and the right to, of the uh, membership in his uh, uh, caucus do want to impeach. So it's going to be very interesting, uh, Jim, to watch the kinds of compromises he has to make. Absolutely, absolutely, and and again, and, and and one of the things that's happening right now is you're not going to have a GOP house that hits the ground running on January third. They don't. Uh, have, yeah, they, 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 the they have. They yeah. have, no, they have put off all the naming of, of the naming of chairmanships and the hiring of staff. Yep. So that's very important. 
Galloway, we're out of time for today's show, but I really enjoyed this conversation. I'm so glad you were a part of, of it. I hope you, Jim, have a great weekend. Everybody out there, you too. Enjoy the weekend. We're back Monday with a brand new political rewind. And uh, until then, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care and stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you on Monday. <laughs>